Psalm 90, 5, 9, 6. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favour of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Well, do keep that open, and then if you're with us for the first time inside your service sheet, you can find an outline of where we're going. And just a reminder to those with young kids, if you need some space, uh, do head out to the back room at any point. At his home, uh, on his living room wall, the sprinter Zarnold Hughes has a vision board. And on it, he's, he's laid out his grandest ambitions... He's plotted his dreams, he's mapped out his life goals, he's fixed his targets. He's recorded his achievements. This guy, Zarnell, he broke the British 100 metres record last month. He is the fastest man in the world this year. What's on your vision board? So vision boards are basically a visual representation of your goals, which you are then supposed to manifest, I think is the, the modern lingo. And it's a tool, basically, for helping turn your dreams into reality. Now, what's on your board, whether it's an actual board in your bedroom or just on the wall of your mind? What are your dreams? What are your ambitions? What are your goals? What are your targets? And are they things which matter, or are they basically trivial pursuits? Are they in line with reality? In, 90 that I've, in Psalm 90 that I've just read to us, basically what we have is the vision board of Moses. You'll see from the heading, if you've got it open still, page 596, the heading, it says it's a, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So this is what hung on his wall. Moses, the great man of God, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Do you remember he led God's people out of Egypt He was given the law by God on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and so on. Someone whom it says God knew face to face. Deuteronomy 34. This great man of God, he shows us his vision board here. And he shows it not for historical interest, 
but so that we will make it our own. That's the point. Because even though this guy lived way back in 1500 BC or something, which makes this the oldest of the Psalms, on Moses' board what we see is reality. And we see what matters in the light of that reality, what our goals should be. These things don't change. And so this is a great place for us to go in our series on ambition. You'll see on the outline there inside the sheets, the psalm divides into two halves, face up to reality, and then focus on what matters. First, then, we need to face up to reality. The starting point in the psalm is God himself, and in particular that he is eternal. So if you look at verse 1, it begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The reign of the British royal family spans 37 generations from way back King Alfred the Great. But each monarch only lasted, of course, for one of those generations. But God, this says, is the constant through all generations, all generations of human history. And more than that, he was there before history and, in fact, before the universe, which he made. So verse 2 says... Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So if you look at a mountain range like the Alps or the Himalayas, and it looks so solid, it looks so permanent. But God is infinitely more solid and more lasting because he's the one who created them. And the earth and everything. He always has been, he always will be. He's from everlasting to everlasting. People say, well, who created God? And the answer is no one. He alone is eternal, uncreated, immortal. So on Moses' vision board, the eternal God is the starting point. He is the center. And his vision board reflects reality. That God is the center. He's the center of everything. And so if our vision board is to reflect reality as well, This is the first thing, we need to stick on it, the everlasting God. And right smack in the middle, not on the edge somewhere with ourselves at the centre, but the everlasting God, right smack in the middle. Hebrews 11.27 says about Moses that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And it sounds a paradox, well how can you see someone who's invisible? And the answer is, by faith. We see God by faith. And this invisible God has now made himself known, made himself visible in Jesus Christ. So, the everlasting God needs to go first on our vision board, right in the middle. And maybe, you know, if you're actually doing this, you'd stick a picture of the Alps there to remind us about that point. Across it, we'd write the words, the everlasting God. And underneath it, on his vision board, Moses sticks some grass. Because that's us. As people, we're like grass. Unlike God, we are soon gone. So verse 3, it says, You return man to dust, and you say, Return, O children of man. Do you remember Genesis 2? Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, and in death we return to the dust. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, what they say at a funeral service. So as humans, the soil is our origin and the soil is our destiny. How different we are 
to the everlasting God. And because we know death is coming, because we know we're going to return to the dust one day, how different our view of time is to that of God. So we're very aware, aren't we, of time passing. We're aware of not having enough time. We're aware of uh, time running out. Very, very different for God. So verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. Think of everything that's happened in the past thousand years of human history. So since 1023, I have no idea what happened in 1023, but imagine what's happened over the past uh, past, thousand years. That whole millennium, this says is like a day to God, or less than a day, it's like the few hours of one of the watches into which the night was divided back in those days for guards on duty. Unlike God, we are trapped in time. And how alarmingly brief our lives are. Moses uses three images here to bring this home. So verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. You've seen in the news, parts of India have been devastated recently by flooding. I was watching a video of it and the flood just sweeps away everything in its path. Cars, houses, bridges. And just as suddenly this is saying, we are swept away, not by a flood, but by death. Second picture, verse 5, they're like a dream. So when you're asleep, you have a dream, but then you wake up and it's gone just like that. Same with our lives. Third picture, verse 5, like grass that is renewed in the morning, In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So our lives are as brief as grass. We may look great for a while, so like grass that flourishes in the morning, but all too soon we fade and wither, we get old and we die. God is eternal. We are ephemeral. Isn't that a fantastic word? You know that word ephemeral? Um, it basically means, it comes from the Greek, and literally it means lasting only a day. Ephemeral. And it was originally used, and it is still used, as a scientific term for plants or insects with a very short lifespan. They're called ephemerals. So Rob was telling us at the beginning about the, uh, the ant, but you've got the mayfly. The mayfly lives only for a day, or maybe a couple of days. And as humans, this is reminding us We too are ephemeral. We're here just for a short time. So three very sobering pictures about how short life is, and elsewhere in the Bible we're compared to a breath on a cold day or a passing shadow. We're compared to a mist which just evaporates. It's true, isn't it? I mean, the other week I was at a Thanksgiving for a friend, a friend my age, who died in his sleep. And at events like that, you're forcefully reminded, aren't you, of how very, very short life is. We need need to have these pictures on our vision board. The everlasting God at the center, but then around it, pictures of a flood, a dream, grass, breath, shadow, mist, eternal God, ephemeral people. But why is life so short? Why is it so short? We actually had a couple of indications already in verses 3 to 6 that this is no accident. In fact, it is God's doing. Did you spot them? So verse 3, 
Moses says to God, you return man to dust. And verse 5 he said, you sweep them away. But why would God do that? Well, that's what we now learn in verses 7 to 11. Verse 7, Moses says, we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. Life is short because God is angry. Death is God's judgment on the human race. It's an expression of his righteous anger, his divine wrath. Why? Well, because of sin, because of our sins. So verse 8, Moses says, You have set our iniquities, that's our sins before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God warned the first people he made that if they disobeyed him, he said, you shall surely die, Genesis 2.17. They did disobey, and they did die. And so sin and death entered the world. Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world through one man, that's through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, all people, because all sinned. As it says here in Psalm 19, verse 3, it says we are all children of man, or you could translate that, you'll see in the footnote, children of Adam. In fact, the Hebrew word there for man is Adam, Adam. We are his descendants. People die in different, in different ways, don't they? So uh, some die in accidents, other people die from natural causes. But actually, this is telling us Death is never an accident. In the end, it's God's judgment on a human race. And no one dies by natural causes. We all die from supernatural causes. Supernatural ones. We we all die because we're sinners. We're all sinners. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And not only is death because of God's wrath, our short lives are lived under God's wrath. So verse 9 For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. We live in a world under God's judgment, a creation in bondage to decay, Romans 8 says, a world in which, Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven in the present. And because of that, life is hard. Work, relationships, health, worry, stress, there is a lot of toil and trouble, even for us in our material comfort. And how much more so for the majority world in which life is a struggle for survival. And we're soon gone, aren't we? Even if we live to 70, 80. I mean, 80 is only just over 4,000 weeks. That ain't so long, is it? A week goes just like that. You live till you're 80, you'll just have over 4,000 weeks. We're soon gone. But do people think about this? Do people think about this? Do they consider it? Do they take it to heart? No, they don't. Verse 11, Moses says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And the answer is, very few people. Many people just try to ignore death, 
It's the taboo subject. It's the elephant in the room that they walk around and try not to bump into. They just live for today, and they ignore tomorrow. Other people do face up to death, but they don't think about why we die. So they they don't join up the dots. They don't follow the breadcrumbs. They don't recognize the cause of death, that it's because of our sins and God's judgment on that. So on our vision board, we need an angry face emoji, basically stuck up there. It's absolutely key to a right perspective on life, right goals, that we recognize not just that life is short, but why it's short. Because of God's anger at sin. Because of his righteous wrath, his just judgment. So in verses 1 to 11, Moses on his vision board, he's facing up to reality. What's he got on his vision board? He's got the eternal God right there at the center. And then he's got pictures of how brief life is for us as people. And he's got the reason why. God's angry face, the, the angry emoji, God's anger at our sin. Now these may not be the kinds of images that we would choose to put on our vision board. But this is reality. And if we don't face up to it, then it's going to catch up with us in the end. But if we've got these things in place on our vision board, we are now in a position to set goals in the light of these realities. That's what Moses does. What he does is he shows us now what to focus on in life. He shows us what matters in light of these hard truths we've just looked at. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Well, here are Moses' three. Three targets on his vision board. Number one, Teach us to number our days. So have a look at verse 12. He says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is key to life. We don't want to be fools, do we, who waste our lives on trivial pursuits and make bad choices. We want to make sure we have a heart of wisdom. What does a wise life look like? Well, elsewhere in the Bible it tells us, Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom is fearing God. And then turning away from evil. Do you remember Job did that? We did it, had a Job series, Job 1.8. God commended Job as someone who feared God and turned away from evil. So that's the wise life. How do we get such a heart of wisdom? Well, Moses says, by numbering our days. Verse 12 Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What does it mean to number our days? It doesn't just mean to recognize life is short. It's also to recognize why life is so short. It means living within the framework of verses 1 to 11. God is eternal. We are soon gone as sinners under God's judgment. We need God to teach us that. We need to ask him to teach us that. You see, plenty of people in the world have uh, the YOLO attitude, don't they? Uh, They recognize life is short, and they say, you know, YOLO, you only live once, make the most of it. That is not numbering our days in a biblical sense. It's not recognizing why life is so short and why we die. It's not acknowledging the everlasting creator, God, and his right judgment on sin. And so, YOLO people, they may set lots of goals, they may write bucket lists, they may do amazing things and have exciting adventures, 
but they're not living wisely because they're not numbering their days before the everlasting God. Now, even if we do number our days, we might say, well, what's the point if we're just grass? We'll soon be gone. What hope is there? Well, purpose and hope are found in making this everlasting God our dwelling place. And that, in fact, that's how the psalm began. So verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So we ephemerals need to get connected to the eternal, the eternal one. We need to make the eternal God our dwelling place, that is our home, our comfort, our security. And when we do that, he shares his eternal life with us, and withered grass suddenly has everlasting hope. You know, it's like when your uh, laptop or your phone is running low on battery and you see the percentage thing going down, and soon it's going to be dead. And what do you do? Well, you plug it into the mains, and then life and power fills it. Well, the everlasting God is, if you like, it's a bit like the main supply at one level, that we just need to get connected to him. We need his eternal life. We need his divine power. Now, that happens through God's word, revealed now fully in the gospel in Jesus, that God's word is like, maybe think of it as the charging lead. Next time you get your charging lead out, that's what God's word is. And when we believe his word and we receive it, it's like we're plugged into the mains and we're born again to new life. We had this in our first reading, didn't we, from 1 Peter. So verse 23, Peter said, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. If you become the fastest man in the world, that's a pretty impressive achievement, but even the fastest man in the world can't outrun death. I mean, death is lightning fast, super fast, and never gives up. And one day, death will catch up, even with the fastest man. And what is the point then of all those achievements on the vision board? What's the point? We need to get connected to the everlasting God. We need to make him our dwelling place, make him our home. And we mustn't delay. I mean, you know what it's like if someone's chasing you, and uh, they start to catch up with you, and you can hear their footsteps getting closer, and when they get really close, you can hear their heavy breathing behind you. Death is in pursuit. Death is catching up with each one of us. We need to get plugged in and connected to the everlasting God, and that begins with numbering our days. But how can we make the everlasting God our dwelling place if we are sinners under his judgment, if he's angry with us? Well, the second request, satisfy us with your love. So verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Our only hope is if if the Lord returns to us and has pity on us and shows us his steadfast love and mercy. And that is what he does for all those who make him their dwelling place. Many years, centuries after Moses lived, God would, of course, demonstrate his great love 
and mercy once for all time in sending his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to pay this penalty that his righteous anger at sin demands. And when we receive that grace of God in Christ, we experience God's love instead of his wrath, his anger. So God's great love in Christ is our only hope. And it's something we need to come back to every day. So each day we should make this our prayer. We should say, um, verse 14 there, Lord, satisfy us in the morning. Satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love. Great way to begin each day. The Rolling Stones famously sang that song, didn't they? I, I can't get no satisfaction. I guess many people could relate to that feeling of alienation as they seek satisfaction in their work or in sexual experiences or in buying things. But nothing in life gives our hearts the satisfaction that we ultimately long for because we were made for the everlasting God and it is in him, in his love, that our souls are satisfied. But that's something we need to keep coming back to as God's people Every day, every morning. Because so easily we drift, don't we? Even as God's people, we drift and we start seeking ultimate satisfaction in other things rather than his love. So we need to come back to him every day. And the result, verse 14, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Life in a world under judgment, it is hard. There is much affliction, much evil, as this verse says. But in God's love and finding satisfaction in him, we experience joy. We experience gladness. I mean, it sounds like Moses and the people were going through difficult times when he wrote this psalm. So verse 13, he says, How long, O Lord? Sounds like they're going through hard times. But even in dark days, we can find joy and gladness in God's love. Now, this means that verse 9 is not the whole story. So, verse 9 said, all our days pass away under your wrath. That sounds pretty bleak. But then, verse 14, we can also rejoice and be glad all our days in the experience of God's love, even as we live in a world under judgment. You're in the habit of doing, uh, reading the Bible each day, praying about each day. It's a great habit to, to cultivate. What's the point of doing that? Well, partly the point is that we find satisfaction again each day in God's love as we begin the day. So we don't then spend the day trying to quench our spiritual thirst with other things. And so this is a great prayer to begin each day with. Lord, please satisfy me now with your steadfast love. And then thirdly and lastly, uh, his request is that God would make what we do of lasting value. Establish our work. So verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God's work, what he does, has lasting value and it makes a difference. Uh, God has shown his work and his power supremely in what he's done in Jesus, to save us. That's God's work. But our work, what we do, not just in our jobs, but our work in the sense of our everyday lives, what we do, by contrast, what we do can feel of very little lasting value. 
And sometimes it maybe feels a bit pointless. I was reading a post by someone who wrote this. They said, there really is no point or purpose in life, so why bother with it? You eat, you sleep, you help other people, other people help you, you love, you hate, you read, and so on. So what? What's the point? Now, some people try to deal with this with frantic activity. They just try and cram in as much as possible to life, seeking to somehow make my life count, but that is just a recipe for burnout. So one therapist wrote this about a young woman who came to her. The therapist wrote, she was afraid of dying. In fact, not just afraid, she was utterly terrified. And she raised it every time we met for a therapy session. When we met, my client was on the brink of burnout. And I asked her, why are you pushing yourself so hard? She was cramming too much into her days. And in a wash of tears, it all came out. She was running herself ragged, and it was bound up with a terror of not being successful, of failing to make something of her life before it was too late. She said, if I, die, if I died now, it would be almost as if I'd never existed. How do we make our lives count? Not by cramming them full of more and more activity, constantly pushing, pursuing, striving to achieve more, but by living for God. So he alone can give meaning to what we do. He alone can establish the work of our hands as we do it for him, as we serve him. Even the smallest thing has value as we do it for him. And as we seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, as we were thinking about the other week, the cause of the gospel, we're assured that our labor is not in vain. The therapist ended her article with these words. Each of us only gets a few trips around the sun. And when those trips come to an end, the rest of the world will still get out of bed in the morning and sip their coffee and go about their day. Sometimes it pays to remember that. And that's basically what this psalm has been impressing upon us. The life is short. And we make it count by living for the everlasting God. And only he can establish what we do. So it's of lasting value. So that's Moses' vision board. That's what's on there. He faces up to reality. And then he focuses on what matters in light of that reality. Rob Parsons tells the story of a firefighter in one of the Twin Towers on 9-11. And this firefighter said that they were going up the stairs and trying to clear out all the offices, and they got to one of the middle floors. And they found an office worker alone in the open plan office, sitting at his computer screen. And these firefighters screamed at this guy, telling him, you've got to get out, you've got to get down the stairs. And this guy was like, yeah, 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 no, 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 I need to finish this. I need to finish this work stuff, this email and so on. They were screaming, no, come out. No, no, push off, I've got to do this. He wouldn't come. He was just so absorbed in some work email he was writing when the tower was about to collapse underneath him. And in the end, they had to go. They just left this guy at his screen. That guy was out of touch with reality. And the point of this psalm is to stop us making the same mistake. So this vision board, it gives us perspective on life so that, like Moses, we might focus on what matters 
and live our lives for that as we make our few trips around the sun. Well, let's pause to reflect on these truths and then we're going to join in prayer together.